Welcome to the busy Latter-day Saint, where righteous desires and living life come together. Here, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints discuss their challenges and successes in studying the scriptures. I'm your host, Richard Bernard. The music for this program is by Marvin Goldstein and used with his permission. Please give this podcast a thumbs up and tab the subscribe button. Your thumbs up and subscription increases the show's ratings, thus making it easier for people to find. Feel free to email me with your comments or would like to be a guest on the podcast. Additionally, please let me know if you have someone in mind who would make a great guest. And add your email to receive updates on the Gospel Library and news about the podcast. I only send emails once a week and rest assured that your email will not be sold. Links to my email and the website are in the show notes. Today's guest is Casey Griffiths, an instructor at BYU and author of The Four Loves and The Latter-day Saints, The Nature of Love in All Facets of Our Lives, and is the co-author of The Search, Ponder, and Pray, travel guides for church history series. It was a delight sharing time with Casey as he talked about teaching the young people of today, his family, and his approach to studying the scriptures. And now, here's Casey. Casey, welcome to the podcast. How are you this afternoon? Um, I am great. Thank you for inviting me on, and I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm glad you're here too, and um, let's learn a little bit about you. Um, Where do you work? Uh, I work at Brigham Young University. Um, I'm a teacher in the Department of Church History and Doctrine, and I teach big sections, sometimes up to 300 uh, students in a section. Uh, Mostly I teach uh, Foundations of Restoration, which is our Introduction to Church History class, and the Eternal Family, uh, which is a class that is built around the Family Proclamation, and kind of splits its time between uh, the Doctrine in the church that uh, informs us when it comes to our family relationships and best practices in family life. So it's sort of a, here's why family matters. Here's how to have a happy family um, kind of thing. Well, with 300 students, I'm sure you're using AI to do the grades, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I have some wonderful TAs that help with grade. I'm not ready to turn everything over to AI. <laughs> um, but I think my students have been trying that, but um, I'll I'll say this: It still is a little obvious when a student uses uh, something like Chat GPT to write a paper. <laughs> you can still usually tell. Yes, because the sources may not be correct, and they're using words that you know they just don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's less of a writing program and more of a plagiarism uh, program. <laughs> and so, if I run it through a plagiarism detector, it usually does come up. So. That's not to say it's not a wonderful tool for people out there, but you know, for specific things like Section ninety three of the Doctrine and Covenants, I just don't know if AI has has quite caught up with us yet. Well, I've been experimenting with it in studying the scriptures, and my son back east has. Um, I asked it to give a, a summary of Alma thirty two. It was right on. Yeah, I couldn't believe how accurate it was. But then <laughs> I was looking for a quote, and uh, it said that, uh, I believe it was Elder Bednar that uh, said it, and when he said it, and of course I you know, went back and checked, and of course it was uh, President Nelson. So there's things like this that um, just don't quite come out. Well, enough on AI. Um, how long have you been teaching at BYU? 
Oh, that's a good question. I think I've been here about eight years. Um, I came as a visiting uh, professor back in 2013 and uh, joined the faculty full-time a few years later and uh, just love it here. Wonderful environment. And I work with great people and wonderful students, and I get to teach the scriptures all day, which is ideal. Yeah. Now, did you start out as a seminary or institute teacher? I did. Yeah. I worked as a seminary teacher and curriculum writer for, I think, 11 years before I came to BYU. And I I could have done that my entire life and I think been very, very happy. I was really um, satisfied working in the classroom. Just when the opportunity came to come to BYU, I couldn't pass that up either. And I pretty much do the same thing here that I did there. I just get a little bit more time to research and write, but it's essentially the same. Now, where did you grow up? I grew up in Delta, Utah, um, this little town uh, in central Utah, about 30 miles from I-15. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of jokes about how Delta is the end of the earth, or uh, Jay Golden Kimball said people in Delta shouldn't fear hell because they are living in it. Um, but but to me, you know, it, it's an ideal place. I love Delta. I thought Tuella was the end of the earth. <laughs> it it looks kind of like Tuella, and Tuella's grown quite a bit. And yes, they are it getting has. a temple. Yeah, it has. Um, now, Delta still has yet to get a temple and probably isn't growing nearly as much as Tuella, but to me, it's a little slice of heaven. And it's not because of the landscapes, because of the people that are there. People there are amazing. Well, now, how many people were in the town when you were growing up? Oh, probably about 3,000. Uh, okay, people. that was just enough that if you did something wrong before you got home, your mother knew. <laughs> yeah, and actually, um, my wife brought this up, but when we, when she first started coming back to Delta, and she was with me, and uh, people would say, so what are you doing now? And I'd say, well, I'm a seminary teacher. She said that everybody looked totally surprised and a little shocked um, to the point to where she was like, were you a really bad kid growing up or something? Like, were you the town delinquent? Um, why is everybody so surprised that you're a seminary teacher? And I don't know, maybe I was the town delinquent. I thought I was a pretty good kid. Uh, but it, there, that's kind of the town, right? Like everybody you run into knows who you are and is curious about your background. And that was an ideal environment, I think, to grow up in. I, I think it is too. I didn't grow up in that, but I'm often, often envious of people who have. Now, did you serve a mission? I did. I served in the Florida Fort Lauderdale mission. Um, wonderful place, to complete 180 from where I grew up. Uh, I went from living in a small town most of my life to living in a mega city uh, that takes up that entire southern uh, tip of Florida where. Uh, from West Palm Beach uh, down to Miami, it's pretty much just a huge urban sprawl. And that was quite a bit of culture shock, uh, too. It's also a real melting pot down there where, you know, you could knock on a door and be talking to someone from Jamaica. And the next door, it's someone from Haiti. And the next door, it's someone from Puerto Rico. And it was a real, real immersion for me in a number of different cultures. But it also made me kind of fall in love. Uh, with the wonderful diversity that you find in the church and that, you know, in a, in a South Florida ward, you can go to church and you can see people from, you know, a dozen different countries and they're all getting along and they're all connected and they all love the gospel. And so I'm, I'm really 
happy I got to go there. I I didn't speak a language. I was an English speaking missionary, um, but our mission had I think five languages. Uh, we had Spanish, Portuguese, uh, Haitian, Creole. We even had a couple ASL missionaries. Um, and it was just, like I said, a, a great place to serve. I loved uh, my mission. Well, you did have to learn to speak Floridian, though. I had to learn to speak Floridian. <laughs> I had to. I saw a couple gators, um, and it still makes me laugh when Florida pops up in the headlines. You know, when people do that Florida man thing, where you Google your birthday and Florida man and see what's coming up, because it is a really vibrant place with a lot of interesting people. Uh, that are doing crazy things. But I love the people there. I think that they're just salt of the earth and they treated me really, really well. And so I'll always have a soft spot for Southern Florida. Well, I've heard you've been married a little over 20 years. How many children do you have? Uh, we have four children. Um, we kind of have uh, two families. We got a 21-year-old and a 19-year-old. And then we had an eight-year gap and have a 10-year-old and a five-year-old. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so we're, we're dealing <laughs> we're dealing with college and mission applications at the same time we're, you know, putting one in kindergarten. Yeah, and um, <laughs> I don't know why we did it that way exactly, but um, it's it's fun and having little kids and and grown kids. We don't call them the old kids; we call them the classic kids mm -hmm. and the new kids. Um, has given us kind of this feel like we have two families, but uh, boy. Wouldn't trade that either. We just have a beautiful family, and, and a lot of that credit goes to my wife, who's a who's a great mother, um, and a one, has been a wonderful partner. Well, family home evening must be real interesting with a five year old and a twenty one year old. <laughs> it is, it is, and uh, we try to have. You know, I teach twenty year olds for a living. And so I try and work some of that in, but there's also a lot of ice cream and little kid stuff. And actually, I'm sort of finding that if you can get a five-year-old engaged, then your 21-year-old will be engaged too, that the tricks don't change that much. And usually if you aim for a five-year-old, your 21-year-old your will still connect with it. Because for a five-year-old, the gospel has got to be fun. Uh, for a 21-year-old, you can be a little bit serious, but... If it's fun too, they tend to engage a little bit more as well. Yeah, I um, was back east at my son's home and uh, with their five children and um, and their family home. <laughs> a teenager all the way down to those at that time, someone was like two or three, and the kids are all over and they're doing somersaults and they're rolling on the floor and I'm yeah, you go, is anything sinking in? <laughs> <laughs> but I've learned over time that, the, yeah, the little ones, even though they're antsy and moving around, they seem to, something sinks in. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And, you know, I, I, I'm firmly of that philosophy that it's more about consistency than it is about brilliance in your gospel study. I used to have a teacher I worked with that would say, I, I don't know what I ate two months ago, but I know it nourished me. And that if I eat every day, I'll stay strong and healthy. And so in our family, you know, we we still swing for the fences every now and then and try and have those experiences that really uh, are transformative. But I found that those are less important than just a general consistent uh, trend of, of gospel study. And so the other day we were doing Come Follow Me and my 10-year-old said something like, ah. Oh, I don't like the way Paul talks about women. <laughs> and I, 
I, I, I, I was a little taken aback and jumped in to defend Paul. Uh, but then I thought, you know what? It's pretty amazing that a 10 year old knows who Paul is uh, and has strong feelings uh, about Paul. And gosh, I, I hope she comes around because I really do love Paul and think that he's wonderful. Um, but the fact that she has an opinion on Paul um, yeah. for me, you know, I felt like it was a major accomplishment for me and my wife that she knows who this person is. And uh, she she understands the verses enough to <laughs> to not be happy when Paul says women should not be permitted to speak in church or something <laughs> like that. Well, next thing she's got to learn about is context. Yeah, there we go. There <laughs> we go. So we tried to contextualize a little bit and say, hey, uh, take it easy on Paul. He was he was dealing with a lot, and and we tried to help her resolve that as well. But the fact that she you know was involved in the scriptures, uh, I'm 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 happy. Yeah, I, I think that's that's absolutely wonderful. Well, now you work with twenty uh, year olds. Um, about a month ago, I had Brad Wilcox on this um, podcast, and he talked about the the youth and how great they are. What is your opinion working with these uh, young people? Um, it might not be fair for me to judge because I am at BYU, and I feel like the the kids I work with are the top-notch best uh, anywhere in the world. They're just awesome. Um, and if they're a sample of what their generation is like, there is so much for us to be hopeful about when it comes to them. Uh, they are more scripturally literate. They're more thoughtful. Uh, they're more centered on social justice and goodness than almost any group uh, that I've I've taught. And, uh, you know, they're passionate is, is the, is the best thing I can say where I teach general religion classes that are required for a person to graduate. Um, and they engage, like they have a lot to say and they have a lot of feelings. And again, there's, there's some real growing pains that come from having a testimony as a child, uh, and having a testimony of the uh, gospel as an adult. So you have to encounter a lot of complexity there and become comfortable with it. But the way they navigate it is really, really impressive um, to where when you come across something uh, really tough, like um, like LGBT issues or um, challenging issues in church history, like plural marriage, um, they're really good at navigating it, um, probably better than previous groups that I've had. And I'll say this too. Um, the the youth that I work with today are are searchers. They're seekers. Um, they they don't just kind of accept what you have to say to them. Um, they want to dig deep and they want to know how you know what you know, and they want to have the tools themselves so that they can go out and help other people. So uh, I, I I work with Brad, and I'm not sure what he said, but I would say I'm hopeful. You know, I'm so impressed by the students I work with and, and the goodness that I see and the desire they have to really go out and, and make the world a better place. Like it's a, it, it, if I, I, I get a couple of months off a year um, um, and I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm a better person and I feel a little bit better about uh, the world in my life when I'm in that classroom. And it's because of the, the goodness and energy that they give me. Well, we just had, I believe it was this last Sunday at 7 p.m. that uh, the testimonies of the youth uh, was uh, broadcast. And I think it was an excellent um, example of the youth throughout the world in the church. Yeah, yeah. That's the other great thing about our um, 
our student body here at BYU is I'm seeing more and more students from different areas around the world. And that is uh, wonderful, you know, to see uh, the church growing and spreading and seeing these uh, wonderful youth coming here, getting an education and going uh, back to their countries uh, to spread the gospel is really great. Um, and so that's a wonderful thing too, is to just see the gospel in all these different cultures and how it's universal and how it helps you regardless of where you lived and grew up. Well, now, you've also just recently authored uh, another book. It's called The Four Loves. Um, I think it's a good segue here, talking about the youth <laughs> and the subject of love. And, of course, um, <clears throat> love, when we look at it in the worldwide, it's, you know, what's in People magazine and what the movie stars are doing. And this is the <laughs> idea of love and attraction, and they fall out of attraction, they divorce each other. But you, you wrote an excellent book. It's... Uh, a quick read. It's about 135 pages, and it's on the four different types of love. Could you just take a minute or two and just kind of sum up the book? Yeah. Um, it's based on a book that C.S. Lewis wrote called The Four Loves, which isn't one of his better-known works, but he just points out that uh, in the language the New Testament was written in, in, in Greek, there's four different words for love. Uh, in English, we use the same word love for whether you're talking to your fiance or whether you're talking to your mom or whether you're talking to uh, your friend that you're on a fishing trip with. Um, the Greeks were more precise in their language. And so there were four kinds of love. The first one was Eros, which is typically what my students think of when they think of love. Eros is romantic love. Yeah. You're in love with someone. You want to, you want to marry them. You want to have a family together. That's Eros. And that is how we almost always think about love. Uh, but in the scriptures, the other types of love, for instance, philia was the second one. This is friendship love, sometimes brotherly or sisterly love, uh, is also a really big deal. And a lot of the intense relationships that people in the scriptures have is not with people that they're romantically interested in. It's people like David and Jonathan, who were dear friends, who loved each other, or uh, like Peter and Christ, or Paul and Barnabas. Um, the third type of love is storging which is familial love, which again, in the scriptures is a huge deal. Now, we didn't talk a lot about Abraham and Sarah's courtship, but we talk a lot about their family and their struggles to have a family uh, and what it meant to them to have this posterity that would go on and on and on. And then the the last type of love, probably the most important is agape. Um, agape was Christ-like love and was so different uh, from the other loves that in certain passages in the New Testament, they don't use the word love. They wanted you to know that it was different. So the King James uh, translators often use the word charity uh, to describe this. And so uh, charity is the one that the scriptures really uh, compel us uh, to develop. That The scriptures, I, I think, assume that romantic love, friendship love, and familial love would just come naturally to us. But that charity was sort of unnatural. It was the godly type of love that's supernatural, that goes beyond what humans are normally equipped to feel and do. And so charity kind of puts all the loves together. And if you can master charity, which is probably the most difficult uh, of the four loves, then the other loves become a little bit easier. Because if you can see your 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 friends or your family or your spouse in a Christ-like way, uh, you can solve a lot of the problems. You know, a lot of 
we, we talk a lot about the disintegration of the family um, and, you know, rising divorce rates. And I don't claim to have the, the one-size-fits-all solution to that. But I think a large part of our disillusionment with, with modern marriage is the fact that we we haven't cultivated all these kinds of loves. And, and you can feel all kinds of love for one person. For So, for instance, my wife and I have been married for 23 years. We still love each other romantically, uh, but do we put as much effort into our friendship? Um, do we put as much effort into our family? And most importantly, do we genuinely try to see our spouse through a Christ-like lens uh, that allows us to see them the way the Savior sees them as a person that has needs, a person that struggles, and someone that needs um, our love to help and lift them. And uh, so the argument I make in the book is that Eros is great, um, but too much of anything is is bad for you, right? And that the, what the Lord intended based on the scriptures is essentially uh, that we cultivate all these kinds of loves, that we 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 work to be, you know, a good a good husband, uh, be a good friend, be a good father, and also to be a good disciple of of Jesus Christ. And that if we put effort into those four areas of our lives, that's where we're going to find the most happiness. If on the other hand we just worry about our eros relationship, that relationship does eventually kind of burn out. Uh, because it it it's intense, and that's part of what makes it so thrilling. But it's always meant to be sort of intermingled with these other types of love that make life so rich and meaningful and beautiful. Well, it's an excellent book. I read it. Um, I love the stories you tell in there. Uh, you are a great storyteller, telling the story of Abraham and Sarah. <laughs> I never look at it the same anymore because of the way you uh, describe it. You've got a talent there for taking what I would call a, a common story within uh, as church members and um, made us see them as, um, as human. Well, with, the, with agape and charity, um, let's talk about the scriptures. I'm always interested in talking to those that work at BYU. I've interviewed uh, Susan Easton Black and been at her home. And, and um, I asked her at one point, I said, you know the Doctrine and Covenants. So when the church gets to come follow me, Doctrine and Covenants, and you're reading the Doctrine and Covenants, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> and and she says, well, she says, I have a prayer that he'll show me what I haven't seen yet. And here you teach at BYU, and you've been working with Seminary and Institute for quite a long time. And so... What what do you do when you study the scriptures? Because do you separate um, class preparation with personal preparation? I, I've talked to some seminary teachers that say, no, they kind of combine them. What do you do? Um, I combine them um, partially because for me, scripture study is much more meaningful when I'm preparing um, something. Um, so I'm, I'm a teacher and that's kind of how my brain works is even when I'm just reading through the scriptures, I'm thinking to myself, how would I teach this to somebody else? And so when it comes to scripture study, uh, what I do typically is, and maybe I just do this because this is what I do professionally. I'm organizing my materials into a lesson and thinking, Hey, what are the main points here? Uh, what are the crucial things that the Lord wants me to know? And what's the application? How does this matter uh, in my life? 
And so that that helps you. First of all, there's a ton of information in the scriptures, uh, right? It's overwhelming. Um, but if you kind of have to sit down and teach it to somebody, you're immediately going to separate out the most relevant parts, the most powerful principles. And then hopefully you're teaching with an eye towards, I, I want to make your life better. Uh, it's it's I, I find that if I'm doing that with someone else in mind, uh, then I already study the scriptures in a way that's meaningful to me. Uh, because, you know, I'm both the teacher and the student. Doctrine and Covenants 50 says, if you're really teaching and receiving by the Spirit, then both are edified and rejoiced together, both the teacher and the student. And so, for me, scripture study is most meaningful when I have my students in mind. And it's partially because that's when the Lord allows me uh, to sort of teach myself uh, and make connections. And there's there's all kinds of times when I'll be prepping a lesson and make a connection that I'm excited to go in and share with my students. Or what's probably even more common is I'm teaching my students and we're having a discussion and all of a sudden the light clicks for me. Like it just comes on and something comes out of the text that I haven't uh, realized before that comes together. Sometimes it's because a student said something really amazing and I made the connection uh, based on that. But for me, studying with a purpose in mind is, is a little bit more successful than just kind of reading through the scriptures. I've done that. Um, and I, I remember back in 2005 when President Hinckley asked everybody to read the Book of Mormon in August before December. And I loved that. I loved that intense, you know, just reading through the scriptures quickly. But I think I gain more out of it when I'm, when I'm reading with a purpose in mind, specifically a lesson uh, that I'm going to want to teach um, to, to someone, whether it's a student, whether it's my, my own family, or whether it's myself. Well, now, do you use hard copy? Do you use any digital devices? <laughs> I'm a big digital device guy. Um, I just realized the other day that I haven't gotten my paper scriptures out um, in years, <laughs> to be honest with you. And that's because maybe I have a kind of, you know, ADD where I just really like bouncing from, from one page to another. Um, I, I usually typically use an iPad uh, when I'm when I'm doing my scripture study. And I love it because, you know, I can bounce immediately to a footnote or jump right over and connect this or look up a gospel topic. And a gospel library, I got to say, has so much stuff in it uh, that's useful. Like even at BYU where my students are mostly returned missionaries, you know, I'll show them, have you seen this thing in gospel library? And they just have no idea um, all the stuff that's in there that's so helpful and understanding the scriptures. So, uh, for instance, if you're studying the Doctrine and Covenants, which is which is a book that I teach, uh, the Joseph Smith Papers um, has this little uh, tab where they have historical introductions to all the sections. Um, the challenge of the Doctrine and Covenants is that it has no storyline. It's just revelations. And those historical introductions that they have, which are usually a lot more rich and deep than the italicized introduction in the sections, are so helpful on putting together the story of what's happening when a revelation is received. So, I mean, I, like I said, totally favor electronic uh, over those. Um, uh, and and again, it's, it's because I, I just have so much stuff there uh, that's available for me um, that it's just really, really helpful. Well, two things. Um, my mission, I'm always wearing my missionary tag. And um, I'm not actually required within my particular mission to have to do that, but I do it 
because when I'm out in public, people go, you know, what are you serving? And then, of course, the next thing we know, we're talking about the scriptures and we're talking about the gospel library. But I always show them how to do a search on gospel library. And I have yet to meet somebody that goes, oh, I know how to do that. And <laughs> that that gets their, their attention. And I don't know if you know either. <laughs> how to do a search? How to do a search. If you wanted to find First uh, Nephi 3.7, you would tap on the search icon. Uh, for Android users, it's in the top. Uh, Apple, it's down at the bottom. And in the search field, you just type the, the letter N37. And then look below, and you'll find it, and you tap on it, and you're right there. Did you know how to do that? Yeah, I, I do know how to do that. And okay. actually, um, the other day, that was useful. I had a student come up after class um, and ask about the phrase meridian of time. Mm. And his question was, is that something that we say, or is that something that the Savior said? Because his question was about, like, you know, where does the Savior fit into the grand scheme of things? And um, I, I just pulled out my iPad and said, well, let's look. So we put uh, quotation marks around it and did a search burden of time and then limited it to the scriptures. And boom, found two places in the Doctrine and Covenants where the Savior uses that phrase. So, I mean, that was so helpful. <laughs> In my paper scriptures, you would have had to go to the topical guide, yes. and then it might not have yeah. even been there to begin with. Yeah. Uh, this one, you just type in the phrase, uh, hit search, and I mean, if we wanted to, we could have expanded it to everything in Gospel Library, but he just wanted to know if Jesus had said it. And within a couple seconds, yeah, here's the two places Jesus said it. Tap on the link. Here it is in context. Let's go back. Let's look at the other one. Tap yeah. on the link. Here it is in context. And that is just a really powerful a tool. Yeah, Plus absolutely. the fact that my students can carry their scriptures in their pockets yes. <laughs> at any given time. Yes. Uh, I think makes makes me favor electronic uh, scriptures despite all the other rotten yeah. stuff that's sometimes <laughs> on those devices. Well, you between you and I we've just talked about two different types of um of uh searching. One is to search for scriptures and you just put in the first letter and the numbers and then you talked about searching for a phrase. And uh, mm -hmm. now I'm curious, do you use tags? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I use tags and uh, I really love putting notes in. Um, and, uh, you know, when I teach, uh, a lot of times I, I use a, a wireless interface that lets me uh, screencast. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of times in class, you know, I'll be teaching from my iPad and with a couple of swipes, I can put the text up on the screen mm -hmm. and then the whole class can kind of see that. And yeah, tags. Uh, something I just barely started using is when you use define, mm -hmm. uh, you touch on a word in the scriptures and you hold down and define comes up and then you tap on that and there's a definition yes. uh, for you. I did that in front of my class the other day and they all went, Ooh, yeah. <laughs> and these are, these are, you know, 20 somethings that are supposed to be really uh, digitally savvy, but they didn't realize no. that, Hey, you don't have to look something up in the dictionary. Um, it's actually already there for you. I will tell you, they are not savvy. Um, they're savvy when it comes to TikTok. They're savvy when it comes to Instagram. Um, New York Times did an article about a year ago. They said the biggest problem employers are having, they're hiring these people, and they think that they're savvy, and they're not. And the person they hire doesn't want to say, I don't know how to do this. And so it's creating problems because they're hiring <laughs> them thinking they know how, and they're coming into a job that they haven't got a clue on how to actually use these things. So they're really not savvy when it comes to a practical application. So, uh, and I always enjoy speaking at um, 
uh, a youth conference or something and showing them these things. Well, the gospel library is a very important thing. And oh, one last thing. You said that you go to the Joseph Smith papers. Do you do a link from the gospel library into those papers? Yeah, a lot of stuff in uh, gospel library is linked directly to the Joseph Smith papers. And so in my church history classes, uh, for instance, um, uh, I can pull up the earliest account of the first vision, the 1832 account, mm -hmm. and have them read it. And then down at the bottom, there's a link to the Joseph Smith papers, and they click on that, and there is the paper where Joseph Smith mm -hmm. wrote out um, his his earliest testimony in his own handwriting. And I mean, they can see every jot and tittle that's there basically and, and analyze it. So yeah, I, I would also say uh, I favor electronics because the Joseph Smith papers, which, which comes in printed volumes, but even my printed JSP volumes have wound up sitting on the shelf <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, mostly because the electronic resources are so great. Yeah. Well, I, I think you'll find not, there's not a reference to everything um, within the gospel library to the Joseph Smith papers. And so what I'm referring to is if you find something that's not in the gospel library, but it's in the Joseph Smith papers, there is a way to link the two. Do you know how to do that? I don't know if I know how to do that. Okay. Um, well, you, you create a note and uh, you use an iPad. That's what I use. Cross the keyboard or the iPad toward the very left or to, I'm sorry, to the very right, you're going to see a calendar, which I tell people to use. You'll see a breaker line, but the next one is a link. And if you tap on that, you can paste a link from outside the gospel library into that note. And so while you're in the gospel library, you tap on the link, it'll take you to whatever you're linking to outside the gospel library and then bring you back. Wow. Wow. Well, I hadn't thought of that. So that could be really useful too. In fact, yes. maybe I need to go through my entire Doctrine and Covenants and just link to the historical context. Or yeah. Well, what I like uh, I used it once with um, Adam on Diamon, uh, Doctrine and Covenants one sixteen, and um, mm -hmm. um, I went to that spot where all the tourists go, and you, you look and you can't really see the whole valley or that that area, and so I went to the hotel and I brought up Google Earth, and um, I measured it using Google Earth. It's a little over two and a half miles long, and uh, I can't remember how wide, and it's about 450 acres. And so I took a snapshot of that and uh, saved it and then created a link into Doctrine and Covenants 116. So if I ever teach a class on that, I can say, here is what Adam on Diamond looks like from the air, and here's the size of it. And then it takes me, no. right, it takes me right back to the uh, Gospel Library. Wow, very neat. Well, we're coming to a end close here. Um, and I always ask my guests, would they mind bearing their testimony? Could you do that? Absolutely. Um, I know the gospel's true. And uh, I know that living the gospel has made me a much better person. Uh, I know that the Savior lives and that Joseph Smith was a prophet and that the Book of Mormon is the word of God. Um, and I'll add too, I know that the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price are the Word of God. Uh, we spend a lot of time um, talking about studying the New Testament and, and the Book of Mormon, and rightly so. I love those books. Uh, but I spend most of my time teaching in the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. 
And it's been my privilege to do a lot of research on the background of those revelations and the origins of things like the Book of Moses and the Book of Abraham. And I just want to add my testimony that I know those are the Word of God as well. And I'm grateful for all, all the resources that we have uh, to help us understand the gospel. And also, I know that uh, Heavenly Father knows every single one of his children and takes care of them. I, I get to see that because I teach thousands of students every year, and there's not a one of them that doesn't have some story about how Heavenly Father answered their prayers or helped them or or did something that, that they needed him to do. So I know God knows each one of us, and I'm grateful for the Savior and for the atoning work that he's done to help us um, also know and recognize how precious and important we are in his sight. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.